You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons. Visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Good, you may be seated. Hello, friends on Zoom. We're super glad you're here. My name is Bill White. I'm one of the co-pastors here at City Church of Long Beach, where we are a radically welcoming community on the journey towards Jesus, joining Him in the renewal of all things. And it is just great to be together. Um, I want to give just a heads up uh, for those who like to mentally plan. There is a picnic after service. So it's at Reservoir Park. Uh, so if you want to kind of get your gears turning about whether you're going to get in and out or, or Subway or tacos or whatever, you can do that. You know, you can consult with yourself uh, and prepare because we're going to have a nice time uh, for, for a little picnic lunch afterwards. So, uh, And with that, I would like to invite up our friend Judy Kim, who is going to pray for our kiddos today. Uh, if you would welcome Judy. So great. It's so great having Jason up here today. With I think that may have been the first time we've ever had a bass player. Yeah, yeah, so nice. Yeah, it's really great. So, yeah. God, we thank you so much for today. Uh, what a wonderful day it is um, to be together, to praise you, and to worship you. God, we thank you for our precious children. Thank you for blessing us with their beautiful souls. I pray, God, that our children will um, look up to heaven look at the skies and the mountain, the birds and the flowers, um, and the people around them who love them, and that they would see your love, that they would know your love, that they would have peace and hope and courage um, as they, they see you uh, in your creation and in the people around them. Help us to love them, help the teachers and the volunteers to serve them and protect them. Um, we thank you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So our kiddos up through fifth grade go to kids ministry. We would love to have you with our fearless kids ministry leaders. Uh, and there's a new playground out there, which is great. And then junior high and high school, if you would like to go, you can hang out with some of the cool volunteers who are leading that group as well right now. So, yes. yeah. Very oh, fun. Have fun. Yeah. Hey, friends. I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. My name is Brenna Rubio, and I'm, I'm the other co-pastor here at go. City Church Long Beach. So good to be together this morning. Um, over the last few weeks, we've been doing a little series together. Uh, we're calling Faith in Five Scenes uh, because we're trying to get a sense of the big picture, the big story of what it is that God is doing in the Bible and also in our lives. Uh, and for some of us, we're coming into this because it's just, it's fresh and new to us. You know, maybe uh, as a kid, we had a, a spirituality uh, that uh, we, we grew up in our family that was less Jesus-centered. Um, or, or maybe you're one of those people and you, you went to church all the time, but God is doing sort of something new and you're trying to, to reframe and say, okay, in this new season of my life, faith-wise, how do I understand these things? If perhaps there are some things that I was taught originally, then now I feel like God is reframing. So faith in five scenes. And we have so far started from a sense of, hey, the story begins with scene one, beauty. The sense that God 
created the world, created us, and said, it is good. You are good. The world is good. It's beautiful. We use the word sometimes shalom, uh, which is uh, an ancient Hebrew word that really has a sense of fullness, completion. The image I always get when saying that word is, is this intricate, wonderful, beautiful spider's web, this, this interconnection of deeply good, forcefully good relationships that we have with each other, within ourselves, with God, with nature, this web of goodness that we call shalom. But then last week, we started talking about the second scene in the story, which is a scene of brokenness, the sense that that beautiful web has gotten some tears in it some rips, some relationships that were meant to be so whole, so wonderful, so life-giving, so abundant, they've been twisted, they've been damaged, they've been hurt. And we just acknowledge that that's, that's hard, that we feel that. We feel that in how other people and just the world, the systems of the world, how they've impacted us, how we have borne the weight of we might use the word sin to talk about that brokenness the ways that other people and systems in the world have damaged us but we also acknowledge that there are ways that we damage others out of our own hurt and we we feel that tendency inside ourselves that there's all this good that we want to do and sometimes we fail ourselves we're disappointed in ourselves and there's just something about acknowledging that so today we arrive at a place where feeling sort of the weight of that that there is brokenness inside of us and outside of us we want healing we want someone to come and to help us and so scene three is what we're calling balm which for some of you may, you might be like what does that mean but most of us right i mean there's lit balm that's at least one place where we use that word, right? It's, just an, it's a healing ointment. It's medicine. It's that thing that is going to address our brokenness and help us move back to wholeness. And I think as we come into this conversation today, we just have to acknowledge it's easier for some of us than others to admit that we need healing and that we need help. So I think about one of my children in particular, um, who it's just part of like their love language. It's what they need every day is to give us the ouchie report, right? They're seven and um, they just need to run through. Like, well, here, do you see that bruise and that tiny little spot, right? And oh my gosh, I bumped here. And you know, that teeny little pinprick, I think I might need a Band-Aid, right? I mean, it's just, but to pay attention to their hurts, at the end of the day, it's just a way that they they let us know they need that love. And so most of the time when I'm putting on, it's a real physical Band-Aid, but I'm thinking this is a psychological Band-Aid in so many ways, right? And it's going to last. Why, why are people laughing at me? <laughs> I mean, oh, at your child. <laughs> it's going to last 30 seconds. And yet another part of me <clears throat> is so glad excuse me, uh, that she's able to name her injuries, right? That she's able to name her hurts. Because what I think about is I think about ending up in therapy 
for the first time in my 20s. And as I started allowing myself the freedom and being encouraged in that space to name some hurts, oh my gosh, there was a point where I was like, I may never stop crying. I apparently have 20 years worth of tears backed up, right? Because now that I've opened this door, it's like I'm draining this toxic swamp of injuries, of ouchies, that somewhere along the way, I had stopped believing I should tell people about. I, I had stopped believing that people wanted to hear and they wanted to give me the gentle touch that psychological band-aid that actually matters, right? Because it tells us that we're seen and we're known and we're loved and we're safe. There's a, an author, Resma Menachem, uh, who we're gonna hear from again later. And, and she talks about the difference here as a difference between clean pain and dirty pain. Clean pain being the kind that you can just, you can name. And because you name it, you address it, you heal it, you give it whatever attention it needs, you move through it, and you, you get to the other side. You just get to heal right there in the moment. And then there's dirty pain. The pain that poured out of me <laughs> when I first started going to therapy, that had just been stewing and festering inside of me for 20 years, so that maybe at one point, they had been small pains, but it had been left unaddressed for so long. It was so much bigger. There's a well-known passage in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures um, where a prophet is describing a world, a nation that is stuck in that space of dirty pain, of brokenness, but denial. And Jeremiah describes it like this. All are greedy for gain, prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it weren't serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Oh, you're fine. Get over it. Just keep going. Ignore it. And we do this all the time in so many ways, right? Sometimes just by busyness. We just don't have time. Just keep going, push through it. But there's something, there's something to be said for my seven-year-old's approach of having an evening boo-boo report, <laughs> of keeping up with it daily. This is where it hurts. This is where I need help. I just need a hug. There's an honesty to that. And so the passage goes on just a bit later with the prophet crying out, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? And you get this sense of saying, no, we have to stop. We have to take the time, pay attention, cry out for care. And so that's what we're doing today. We're taking that time to say, where does it hurt? And how does God want to bring healing? Our friend Destiny Garcia is going to read a first scripture for us this morning. Will you welcome Destiny with us? And if... Uh, oh, if, thank you. Yeah. Uh, you may stand. <laughs> All right. Mark two fifteen through 17. 
While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? On this hearing, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks, Destiny. So the religious leaders value um, an approach to brokenness, to sin, uh, which is more about managing. You, you want to manage and avoid and control uh, what's bad in others and in yourself and in the world. And in some ways, it's a, it's a helpful approach. Uh, it's an approach that all of us take at various points in our lives uh, to manage the mess. The difficulty is that that becomes our mode of going through life. And we, we think of it as, this is how I relate to God. When Jesus teaches, that's actually not how we relate to God. We, we go to God with the boo-boo report, <laughs> right? We're not trying to avoid every boo-boo. Uh, we're not trying to armor up in our days. But rather, we're, we're trying to remain open. This is how Jesus teaches. And it's a different approach than, than the religion that he is seeing so often in his world and which we see so often in ours. Uh, a pastor named Rich Viotas, he, he puts it this way in uh, his book. He writes, when spiritual vitality is measured by sin avoidance, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we are following Jesus faithfully. But following Jesus is to be measured by love, love for God expressed in love for neighbor. It's, our life is not about sin avoidance, about having a checklist and, and doing things right. It's actually about love, which you can't check off. There's no limit to how much you can love. And it's an invitation to a whole way of life of following Jesus, which is very different than sin avoidance. Mm -hmm. um, and at this point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little bit of a digression um, onto a, a kind of a heady theological topic that was raised recently uh, by one of our new folks at our story swap last weekend and realized, you know, it's probably helpful to, to pause here as Jesus is talking about this new frame of thinking, not about sin and righteousness, but about sickness and health. Mm -hmm. This new way of thinking about how we relate to God. And so I want to I want to talk. So the, the question from last week, and it, it really does tie in. And for some of us, this will be like, yes, we really have wondered this. And others will be like, what is he talking about? So the question was about penal <clears throat> substitutionary atonement. What did and, some of you just hear? There's a lot of giggling. Some, some people think we're going to start talking dirty from stage right now, but we're not. <laughs> we're not. Um, so penal as in in the sense of punishment 
Thank you, uh, <laughs> Brenna Rubio, for highlighting that just awkward moment. It took um, me a minute back last Sunday. I'm like, why are they laughing? Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's why they're laughing. Um, so penal substitutionary atonement is a theory, uh, kind of a theology where people study the Bible and religious leaders have put together this system that says, this is what happened when Jesus died. This is at the core of what it means to be Christian. They articulated things like, this is what the gospel is, or this is what faith is about. This is what happened at the cross when Jesus, when Jesus dies. And that they've kind of put these words to it, saying that God was very angry at, at you and me um, because we did not avoid sin. And so instead of beating us, God beat Jesus to the point of death. And therefore, God's anger was satisfied. That Jesus was a substitute, a punishment. He received punishment as a substitute for us. Okay? And many of us grew up, some of you are thinking, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> All right? Bless you. Um, but many of us grew up like, that's just like, well, yeah, duh. Right? Maybe it was said slightly more softly, but yeah. It was, sure, of course it was. I mean, I was, that was sort of the raw. That was the, yeah. Maybe, maybe it lacked a little bit of generosity. Maybe a little. Yeah. It might have been a type 8, an Enneagram 8. Crazy. Uh, yeah, maybe I just sort of. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's, it's, Jesus shows up with this different approach to sinners and to the sick. And for those of us who grew up with the penal substitutionary atonement theory kind of guiding our, the very core of what our spirituality has been, uh, it's caused a lot of questions for us. Some people have called it divine child abuse and mm -hmm. all sorts of other things. And so I just, I want to take just a moment and talk a little bit about what, what happens at the cross. Because in the New Testament, if, as you read the scriptures after the Gospels, and they articulate what happened there, they use many different images. All right? there, there are many images that, particularly like the Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot about Jesus' death. And so he uses, for example, on about half a dozen spots, he uses the image from the law courts and this idea of justification which is what happens is when you're pronounced innocent, uh, that you've been justified in the court of law. And that ties into this idea of penal substitutionary atonement. There, there, there are pieces of that there. And it's, a, it's actually a valuable image for what it gives us. There are also images from the, the slave trade. So Paul talks about redemption. Is that you would redeem a slave. They're, they're images from the military when he, he writes about victory. And they're images from, uh, from just the marketplace when it, it talks about how Jesus bought us. Okay, so there, there are all these images of what happened at Jesus' death. And in some ways, a, a group of us, people like me, got together and said, this is going to be our controlling narrative, this penal substitutionary atonement. And it's one of many, and it's not inherently bad, but it's not the complete picture. 
right? It's more well-rounded as you see in the New Testament, multitudes of images trying to convey what God is doing here because none is complete in and of itself. And the, the challenge is when you just have one theory of atonement, one approach to what's central in Christianity, is then you get to the extremes, right? There's, when the law courts are your primary image for what, what happens at the center of our faith, then there's a lot about guilt. A lot about guilt. Mm -hmm. um, and that may not be healthy. Now, guilt is, it's actually, guilt is not always bad. And it, it, there are appropriate ways to, to think about guilt, okay? Um, but when we do too much, then like, ooh, a lot of this worthlessness theology and self-loathing, self-hatred comes in because of our, our theology, because what we view is at, at the center of our faith. So recently I decided I was, I got frustrated by the number of times my, my friends would tap into this idea of why Jesus died because I, I couldn't get myself out of the loop because this is what I grew up in and it's all I could see when I read the scriptures, right? It was just second nature. Of course, God killed his son because we deserved death. I, I would just read that into everything because it's what I grew up in. And so I decided I'm going to, I'm going to go back through the New Testament. So in about a week, I went through the entire New Testament um, and listened in and paid attention to these images around Jesus' death. And again, there are half a dozen pictures of justification, and there are about seven moments where God's wrath is mentioned. And, and those things are worth paying attention to but they pale in comparison to what is the central metaphor of what Christ did on the cross, which is to make us family. Mm. It's supported by the, the, the image of God as parent and us as siblings, which comes up literally hundreds of times in the rest of the New Testament. It's supported by, by, by this imagery, but the images of adoption, of inheritance, that we now have been uh, brought together as one family, come up dozens and mm -hmm. dozens of times compared to just a sprinkling of the others. And doesn't mean that the others are invalid. That's not the point. It's part of a, of a whole picture that we want to look at to understand what God is doing with the controlling picture saying that God wants us to be family. Mm. And so the, the controlling emotion, if around justification and penal substitutionary atonement, it's anger or wrath, judgment. Actually, with the New Testament, on balance, says the majority, it's about belovedness mm -hmm. and care and connection. And so it's a very different sense. And it doesn't mean that, you know, your mom, have you ever maybe gotten angry at your children? Maybe even in a justifiable way? Like it's in her, possibly like, happened. Possibly that's happened possibly. once or twice. But maybe even in a way that was healthy and they 
you know, and that you managed it well. And, right? I mean, this is what we do. Sure, that's a piece of it. But again, the controlling image. And so I just want to share that with you, that that's why, so as Jesus is showing up, and these religious leaders are saying, hey, this is how we see the world. It's righteous, it's the righteous and the sinners, the good and the bad, and sin avoidance, that's what religion is about. Jesus is like, no, it, it's not. It's about belovedness. And you actually, you know, being part of a family is a gift, you're born into it. And we have a number of folks here who have been adopted into families. They were chosen into families, which is a very common New Testament image as well. It's, it's grace. It's, it's a gift. It's, it's balm for our loneliness, our separation, our brokenness. Mm -hmm. Thanks for letting me nerd out with you for a moment. <laughs> Appreciate that. She I, told me to. She, I we, did. <laughs> I did. Because I just, I appreciate it. Like, I'm listening to Bill, right? And I'm thinking like, yeah, it's almost like God is complicated. It's almost like God is bigger than us. Like any one word, any one picture might not be enough to capture all of who God is. I mean, I can't think of one word or one picture that's enough to capture who I am. Why would I think God would not be more complicated than that. So a really practical example of how I think these, these pictures can affect us, right? And it, it matters what our controlling imagery is. Uh, I help prep the kids' lessons every week. Um, and I have a curriculum that I start from, and it's really good in lots of ways, but I always, I just try to pay attention, right? Because there are certain things that I, I think we're just used to and how we communicate with kids and sometimes I feel like it doesn't it doesn't fit with what I think what I want to communicate you know even as a parent much less what we're trying to teach our our kids as a community as a church and so there was a lesson that was going to be about a parable that Jesus taught about how good trees produce good fruit and bad trees produce bad fruit with the idea being as a lesson went on that you kind of so then what you're showing the kids is like hey so look at like what what fruit is being produced in your life are you lying are you hitting are you stealing or are you kind are you gentle do you share right well you walk that back right and so the kid ends up i mean because kids are pretty black and white thinkers a lot of times especially when they're younger they're going to end up thinking well either i'm a good tree or i'm a bad tree i'm a good kid or i'm a bad kid based on how I'm behaving. And most kids start with like more of a fixed mindset mentality too, right? So it's really hard to imagine how you're gonna change your very nature from being a bad tree to a good tree, right? That seems complicated. But that actually wasn't the point of what Jesus was actually trying to teach, right? He was actually trying to teach about paying attention to what's happening inside of our hearts. So a much better phrasing of the story, which I just decided to rewrite because I feel like I'm honoring what Jesus is actually trying to teach and trying to get rid of the sort of distracting words, is to talk about healthy trees and sick trees, right? Because a healthy tree gives healthy fruit, healthy fruit being the kind that leads to healthy relationships, which is exactly that controlling metaphor, right, in the New Testament. 
It's about our relationships with each other. Are they being restored, reconciled, built up? A healthy tree leads to healthy fruit. And a sick tree that doesn't lead, Vijay. Yes. We spend a lot of time talking about like what does it take, what is you know, what makes good soil. Yes. So for okay, our friends Zoom on folks, Zoom, you, you do you it. Know, no, no. Okay. So our friends on Zoom, so VJ Baku just stood Thank up and said VJ. he taught that lesson and that they talked a lot more about the soil uh, and that how the soil affects the tree, which then affects the fruit. Yes, right? Because what a sick tree needs is not shame and condemnation. It doesn't need the axe. It needs gardening. It needs tender care. What's happening with the poor tree? The fruit comes out of like, how is the tree been tended? What does it need? Shifting the metaphor completely changes the conversation. I mean, as a parent, if I'm just focusing on my kid's behavior versus thinking, what is this behavior telling me? about my, what my child needs, right? So there, there are all sorts of ways. I mean, because again, people, oh, but you changed the scripture. No, I shifted the language to actually communicate what the whole story of the Bible and the whole story of the Gospels and the whole story of the New Testament tells me, as well as that individual actual passage, Jesus was actually trying to communicate. And so we could look at it and say, yeah, Jesus, in this one particular reading that we started with today, where the religious leaders were telling Jesus, hey, you're doing something wrong, and, and he just rejected, like he just didn't even want to answer their question, right? He's like, you're, you're just, you're operating in the wrong picture, the wrong paradigm, and he shifts it back, right? It's what fits. So let me give you another example. Um, I'm skipping a few slides, Joe, I'm sorry. Um, Matthew 1.21. We're going to take the same Greek word and we're going to read it two different ways. Two completely valid interpretations from the Greek. The first one is one many of you might have, hear, might have heard before. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And that word save right there, right? You, Anybody in our culture, you know, whether you're born, raised in church or not, you've heard that word save. Jesus saves you from your sin. And in the Greek, it's the word sozo, S-O-Z-O. And that's a valid interpretation that Jesus would rescue you. And it fits really well into that penal substitutionary atonement theory, right? You're being saved from the consequences of your sin. You're being saved from God's rightful wrath. But Here's another completely valid interpretation of that verse. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will heal his people from their sins. So-so means that as well. And how does that shift the picture for you? When you get to think of your sins, that messy stuff inside of you, the places where you're hurt, the places where you're broken, the place from which you may sometimes hurt others. You may sometimes make sad choices, as I talk about with my kids, right? 
What if that's worthy of healing? What if God cares more about the soil? That's where God wants to work first, not about judging the fruit. What if the fruit is more like, think about going to a doctor's office. When they take your temperature, it's not so they can tell you if you're good or if you're bad. It's data for them to understand, are you healthy or are you sick? Do you need care? How can I help you? What if that's the picture? You know, there's a, there's a great story, actually. BJ's comment made me think about it, that Jesus tells that he, he tells this parable, this, there's this tree that's bearing bad fruit, and so the gardener comes and says, hey, we should chop this down, right? And he's just like, no. Dig around it, water it, fertilize Give it, it. Give it a little time. <laughs> it's a good tree. It's okay. Give it some time. You know, it, it's, it's just totally yeah. lines up with, with, with all this stuff. Um, yeah. I love it. Um, so we wanted to hear a story today, um, and so we want to welcome up our friend Tyler Salisbury, who's going to share a little bit of his story with us. Uh, it's been fun. It's, you know, it, it's always fun hearing stories um, and just trying to understand uh, kind of what does this look like in ordinary people's lives, and, and we're just really interested in sort of doing theology with the church, right? And so here's our local theologian for the day, <laughs> who also uh, happens to be a pilot yeah. um, and a restaurant owner. No, you're no longer you're no longer a restaurant owner, that which is yeah, healing in itself. But <laughs> okay, there you go, there you go. So how long have you been around City Church, Tyler? Well, first I'm gonna take it my direction. Okay, but, there uh, you go. The funny thing is, you gave me very adequate amount of time to prepare. Oh, good. Um, but the problem with healing is. Um, we talk about um, balm, but uh -huh. I think it's Neosporin. Yes. It actually burns at first oh. in that healing process. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so you gave me adequate time to prepare, and the only question I prepared for is how long have you been coming here? <laughs> um, because everything else that I went to prepare um, had a little bit of pain to it. Oh. Uh, and so, um, so I have some thoughts but some okay. of this we're okay. just gonna go that's with fine. that's yeah. fine um, we'll go but with. so, so tell, to answer tell your question this is the one i prepared for i've been coming here a little over two months uh, <laughs> no, kind of a long timer long timer. a lot of preparation kind of a long, kind of a long timer <laughs> around city church so um and it's good okay well yeah. we're, we're glad you're here thanks for your willingness to share so so when we think about healing from brokenness and saving this process, um, we can think of it in terms of spiritual, emotional, and social kind of healing wellness. I understand there's a little bit of pain, so you obviously don't share anything that's, you know, don't Too yeah. don't overshare. You're, yeah. you're fine. But, but can you talk to us a little bit about your journey and how you've experienced some, some of the healing, redemption, saving in, in some of those areas? Um, yeah. So, again, the, the challenge here is um, I... I'm going to try to do this without crying so much that you can hear me because um, I think I've cried more in the little over two months that I've been coming here than I did in the previous five years. Wow. Uh -huh. wow. It's, it's, it's normal and healthy to cry. We talked about this beforehand. <laughs> no, like, won't. hey, if you cry, it's okay. But I, um, my story starts is I grew up in the church, and I, I um, am glad I grew up in the church, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that my parents, the thing they said is, as a kid, the only thing we care about in this world is that you grow up and love Jesus, and then eventually they got rid of the grow up part. 
Um, uh, all they care about is that I love Jesus. Yeah. And so that, that I appreciate. Um, but I've known that I was gay since I was born. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that I knew they wouldn't be so comfortable with and I knew the yeah. church wouldn't be comfortable with. Um, and so at about you know, 11 or 12, I had to make the decision. I can pretend that I'm not mm-hmm. and I can keep moving forward in this world that I live in or I can embrace it and lose everything I know in this world. Mm. Um, so what I wanted was a hard heart because if I thought or if I felt, mm. or if I had anything along those lines, I knew I wasn't going to be able to keep moving forward. So I prayed that I wouldn't feel mm. and that I wouldn't cry. Oh, man. And I did that for years. Mm. And uh, that's how I lived my life. And I remember when I was 17, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't be numb, and I didn't want to be numb, and I didn't want to live in a world where I was going to be numb, and I wasn't sure that I wanted to live because I didn't think God loved me. Hmm. I didn't think my family would love the real me, the the authentic me, and I didn't think that the church would accept that, and I didn't think the world would accept that. And I couldn't remember the last time that I had cried, which is funny now. (laughs) Um, But I do remember at 17, leaving my house and driving to church at like 11 o'clock at night, sitting in the parking lot and saying, God, I need someone who knows the depth of my heart to love me. And I need to be broken in your arms right now Mm. and that was when the healing started for me to know that I was loved unconditionally by God Mm. who knew me authentically who knew the depth of my being who knew my sin my pain my struggle and at that time I thought being gay was a sin so I thought he loved me in spite of that sin Um, and um, that was when I broke down and cried, and it was the first time I had cried and wow. I, um, wow. in years, and I just sat in that parking lot and cried for hours. Mm. It was beautiful because I could be broken. Mm. But again, those lip balms sometimes have a little bit of sting or pain at first, and so it takes a while for us to feel comfortable enough to lean into them because yeah. we know that even though it'll make for healthy healing, sometimes that little bit of pain or that way of pushing it aside is less painful yep. than those moments of growth mm-hmm. and healing. Mm-hmm. So I could live like that for a while. I could go yeah. on and I could know that I was loved unconditionally by a father who knew everything about me. But I figured the rest of the world, I would let them see the smiling Tyler um, and, and not the broken Tyler. And yeah. not the Tyler that knew that I was never going to marry a woman thought about it a few times, got a little too close a few times. <laughs> wow. Uh, That's what we do. And, uh, and I stayed there in that place. And um, then eventually I met somebody, and I thought that was a guy. And I thought, I can't live this way hmm. anymore. And I, um, I grew up in Wisconsin in a small town of 6,000, moved to a much bigger town of 20,000. Wow. <laughs> Um, next to a town of 40,000, Janesville, Wisconsin. And um, I was worried. I had started a couple of restaurants and 
um, conservative area and I thought if I come out of the closet are people going to come to my restaurant are they going to love me for who I am and I was slowly starting to love myself um, and uh, and so I knew that I needed to take that next step and when you're in a small town in a conservative town and you own a couple good restaurants um, people are interested in your life so my boyfriend's birthday I came out of the closet I put it on Facebook um, and I said, I can't lie, and it's not fair to him, and it's not fair to me, and this is who I am, and I want to be able to go out to dinner with my partner and not be afraid. Um, and I did that, and this is how small conservative a town that Sunday, the newspaper put it in their, uh, their social column on the cover. <laughs> Restaurant wow. owner comes out as gay. Wow. Um, because that's how scary it is, and that's how much news it is in some small towns wow. that we live in. And, um, so I immediately left town <laughs> wow. for a week <laughs> um, and thought I'll deal with it when I get back. But it was good. But um, but the crazy thing, yeah, I mean, it was it was it was a lot of healing there. I knew that there were people that were going to hate me. Um, but through that, you know, that when I posted that Facebook post, it got shared a thousand times, which is not that many, but it's enough. Um, and then the the newspaper went out to fifty thousand subscribers. So that was a big coming out. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, I knew that the community loved me. I knew that there was support. I knew that I was loved and that was God showing me social grace. That was God showing me mm -hmm. that in this world, yeah. um, I, I get to have grace, uh, mm -hmm. in that process. Uh, and then, um, I kept going, I kept going, and, and, and at that point, obviously, I, I was out. <laughs> um, and I, at that time, thought I had to go to churches that were not um, supporting of being gay, um, but knew that I was gay because I wanted them to see gay people. My mom works for the Assembly of God, and, um, um, and so she oversaw a number of churches. And I honestly, I was, you know, it's dumb, but I was going to wait to come out of the closet until she retired because I didn't want that shame on her. Mm. Wow. Um, but I couldn't do it, so. Yeah. Sorry, Ma. Uh, but um, one of the pastor's wives called me and she said, you know, Tyler, I want to hear a story. I'm in school for counseling. And I asked my kid, I had to write a, a paper, like a final project, and she said, I asked my kids, what's the worst thing that you could tell me? What's the thing that you think if you told me um, I, would, I would have the hardest time forgiving or showing you love? And they're like, you know, and she, you know, she said, what, you know, if, if you gave up God, if you um, joined a different religion, if you did one of those things. And I said, no, mom, if we told you we were gay, um, that would be the thing. And uh, so she called me and she said, I, I still think it's a sin and I don't support it, but I want to hear your story. And, and that was important to me. Mm. But it was funny because she said, I never met a gay person. And I thought, no, you've met me all my life, yeah. <laughs> actually. And a lot um, of others. And there's a ton of us. And, yeah. and we just can't be who we are because we won't feel grace yeah. from you. Wow. Um, and so I thought I had to be strong yeah. and go to churches where I wasn't going to be accepted because... Um, because in being gay, I think I have a tender heart, and I think that people can see that sometimes, and I'm grateful for that, and I wanted them to see that I am a human being, and when you, when you hate something, you hate me, mm. and you have to see my face, um, and so 
that's what I did. And when I moved, I took a break from church because we were open on Sunday, and it was kind of a nice thing. We talked about that. Like, sorry, I can't go to church. I'm cooking. Uh, <laughs> Thank staff you, shortage. Thank you, <laughs> Thank Lord. Thank you, God, for staff shortage. No, um, but when I came out here, I, I sold the restaurants I needed to. I, I needed to peel and work on myself and grow. And um, when I came out here, I started going to church with a friend. Um, she needed a ride, and I wanted someone to go to church with, so it was great. And I knew that they were not accepting. Um, but when she left the pilot program, I said, you know what? I don't want to be strong, because sometimes in experiencing grace, we have to just be a puddle of mush. You know, we have to be and, vulnerable. And, and, and cry a lot. And cry a lot <laughs> and have all of these feelings. And, and every once in a while, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> for ourselves and uh so she left and i came here and like i said all i've done is cry because i felt grace from god to know that he sent his son to die for every person a gay person when i was young i felt grace from my community when i was that was at 17 years old i didn't feel grace or healing until i was about 33 when i came out i'm from the community and now I feel grace from this church congregation. And so I'm so thankful to be here. Again, it feels so good to lean into grace and faith and healing and seeing God's faithfulness in my life. But it hurts. <laughs> um, because I just felt a mild amount of constant pain for 20 years. Um, not being able to completely love myself for that time. Um, but as I lean in, there's work happening. Um, but it is beautiful. And it's funny because I didn't realize until I started coming here how much more work I had to do <laughs> as it poured out every week. Um, but So great. <laughs> we love you, buddy. I love being here. I love you guys. I love you all. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> what a great story. Just amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. Really. Oh. Uh, and obviously there's more, right? Woo! So great. Yeah. Uh, just dear, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, I just want to close with a simple quote uh, that uh, Brenna mentioned, uh, Resma Menachem earlier. Uh, therapist, researcher, works with uh, shame and racialized shame. And um, this is a quote from his book, uh, My Grandmother's Hands. In today's America, we tend to think of healing as something binary. Either we're broken or we're healed from that brokenness. But that's not how healing operates, just like we saw with Tyler. And it's almost never how human growth works. More often, healing and growth take place on a continuum. It's a process. We're receiving more and more grace. Thank you, Tyler, for showing us what that looks like. Yeah. We appreciate you. So, Our friend Emma Roy 